Welcome to Memory Motel. I'm your host, Terrence Mickey, and you're listening to the last episode of Season 1, Message in a Bottle. In 2011, this is a funny story. In 2011, something really weird happened. Everything just just kind of collided. In 2011, Paula Pierce was in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire, struggling to keep up the motel her parents bought way back in 1960. And the really weird thing that happened happened on a particularly hectic night. So it was really, really hot that night. I had like probably three hours sleep, and I don't do well when I don't sleep, you know? And because of the heat, the motel's circuit breakers kept blowing out. Oh, everybody's got their air conditioners cranked right to the max, right? And you know what happens when you leave them cranked to the max. They start to freeze up, right? Then she received a surprise visit from a long-lost cousin. A cousin I hadn't talked to in 40 years. We'd just been out of touch with each other. You know, I'm trying to run a motel here, and I'm like, what are you doing to me, you know? All this stuff she brought me, groceries and knickknacks and oh, my God. And if all that wasn't enough she discovered an infestation of flying ants. And we never had a bug problem, ever, ever had a bug problem. But all of a sudden I look and I can see flying ants in the room. To myself, I'm like, where the, where the hell did they come from? Where did these things come from? Then the really weird thing happened. Patrick Cronin, a local New Hampshire reporter, called Paula out of the blue. So I'm still behind the desk doing different things, checking people in and all that. And all of a sudden um, the phone rings and he starts talking to me about a bottle with a message in it. And he says, Turks and Caicos. I'm like, and I'm, you know, I'm real expressive. You can't see me, but like, I make a lot of faces. And I look at my cousin and I real quizzically and I go, I don't know what this guy's talking about. So I says, hold on a second. I put the phone down. I'm like, what, what? And I go back on the phone. I go, okay, excuse me. What's a Turks and Caicos? I had no idea. Paula had never heard of a place, a person, or a thing named Turks and Caicos. I had never heard of it before. I spent all my summers at Hampton Beach and I, and I don't like to fly, so I didn't even know what it was. So he tells me that it's an island in the Caribbean. And I says, well, listen, I have a lot of work to do and I don't know what you're talking about. I don't mean to be rude. I says, but can you, can you, you know, cut to the chase here? What, what are you talking about? He says, do you know someone named Tina? And at that point, I got the chills. I said, Tina was my mother, and she's been gone 31 years. So this reporter calls Paula out of the blue. He tells her someone by the name of Clint Buffington found a message in a bottle in Turks and Caicos. And the message said, if you find this note, please return it to Tina at the Beachcomber for a $150 reward. But to be clear, Patrick was not calling for the reward money. He was calling for the story of who sent this note and why. And to fully appreciate the rest of Paula's story, you have to meet Clint Buffington. Okay. Cool, cool. I, I am wearing uh, uh, like a red shirt and have like a green backpack on. <laughs> awesome. My name is Clint Buffington and I find messages in bottles. Now the odds of finding a message in a bottle are slim. And even more slim if you live in Salt Lake City, where Clint lives. But he travels to the coast as often as he can, he scours miles of beach, and he wades through a lot of crap before he finds a treasure. 
one bottle full of cigarette butts, a one bottle full of corn, a wheat seed head. Found a lot of toothbrushes in bottles. I have no idea why people store toothbrushes in bottles. I found at least, I don't know, three, four, five, something like that. A whole chicken. I mean, the claws were still on it. The beak was there. I'm telling you, it was a whole chicken. Uh... I have found a page from an adult magazine in a bottle before. It's funny, too, because I was staring at it for a while. Like, I couldn't quite see what this page was. I was like, what? Is this a person that I'm looking at? What is this? And as it dried out and the image became clear, I was like, nope, that's just a giant penis. That's what that is. So there's that. (laughs) Besides finding bottles full of trash, Clint has found, according to his spreadsheet, 82 messages in bottles. But finding messages in bottles is just Clint's hobby. His real passion is returning the messages to their senders. So far, he's met 11 of them. You know, a lot of people think that finding the message in a bottle is the adventure, but for me, that's, that's where the adventure begins because the, the real thing is, is going to find whoever sent this note and to see, to learn what their story is. It's not the bottle itself, it's the connection that comes out of it. I'm here at Baltimore's Penn Station, and uh, I'm going to be meeting a guy named Craig whose message in a bottle I found back in 2007. Um, so it's about almost 10 years now. It's been a long time coming. Craig. Hey, man. Hey, how's it going, man? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> good to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Wow, sweet. I can't believe this. It actually all worked. Yeah. Very cool. I was very excited to witness this first meeting. But I was riding on a bus from New York that reeked of toilet bowl cleaner and skunkweed. And if that indignity were not enough, this bus stopped often because the engine kept overheating. So I was late. How's it going, man? Nice right. to meet you. Good to meet you. What did I miss? Uh, I don't know. What did we talk about? All the trouble that we used to get oh, yeah. into. <laughs> when we were young. <laughs> Pretty much. Actually, Craig did get into a lot of trouble as a kid. I made explosives in high school. <laughs> and one day Craig outdid himself. National Guard came out and <laughs> bombed dogs and everything else. <laughs> Caused all kinds of havoc. <laughs> How big of an explosion was it? It was a six-foot circumference hole, three foot deep. Yeah, I got arrested by the FBI, and um, and I had to have a, um, a party to pay for my lawyer fees and everything. <laughs> yeah, I was a local paper star for a while. <laughs> Clint, as a child, he wasn't blowing shit up. He was grappling with his desire to meet everyone on Earth. My grade school classes were like 25. Everybody knew each other. Uh, There's maybe 250 students in the whole school. And so it didn't seem impossible to me until I got a little bit older. I'm trying to think the moment... The moment I realized I wouldn't be able to meet everybody on Earth. I remember learning the population when I was in, like, probably junior high or something... Um, I think at the time it was like 6 billion and I started to do a little bit of math trying to figure out like, okay, if everybody just stays alive, then how long is it going to take me to meet everybody? (laughs) How much time would I get to spend with each person? This particular desire may stem from a misconnection in Clint's childhood. I was 10. We went on vacation and I remember meeting this kid on the beach who was about my age and his name was Mikey Every day, my family would go down to the beach, and there would be Mikey and his family, and man, we hit it off. Yeah, I remember feeling really close to him by the time the trip ended, so we exchanged addresses, and we were going to be pen pals. Well, I wrote to him, and he never wrote back. And 
I really wanted to be friends. I thought that was going to happen, but uh, I never heard back from him. And I think that that left me with, I don't know, uh, the desire to, to see if that could really work somehow. Clint didn't want to give up on the idea of a pen pal, of making a new friend out of a stranger. And this is where Clint ran a little experiment to see if he could make a pen pal with a message in a bottle of his own. But to increase his odds, he didn't toss it in the sea. I thought, if I send this thing out to sea, no one's ever going to find it, right? Because <laughs> how would any of, anyone ever find a message in a bottle? It was crazy. He buried it in the sand. That was 21 years ago now, but I uh, haven't heard from anybody yet. Mikey may not be the root of Clint's passion, but Mikey's lack of response certainly informs the way Clint approaches it. When they wash up, I feel like it would be irresponsible not to, you know, do the best I can to track them down. I mean, yeah. What did your notes say? Um, I, I exactly, I don't remember exactly what it said. I know it's, I'm, I'm trapped here with a grumpy old man. <laughs> or no, I'm being held hostage by a grumpy old man. There was something in there, too, about, uh, I think you said something like, I'll try to escape next port, oh, or yeah. something like that. <laughs> Craig threw this note overboard on a cross-Atlantic trip he took with his father 18 years ago. Why, at 30, did you and your dad, like, decide to take a solo journey? Oh, it was a father-son bonding, because when I was growing up, we never got along. I was always the black sheep of the family, you know, I was always long hair in bands, earrings, you know, partier. My dad's three-peat business suit, man. Did the boat trip work? Did you guys... In the, in the scope of things and how they went, we got along pretty damn good, you know. And there was a couple times I went to throw him overboard, and I'm sure he felt the same way. <laughs> I, the note was one of the times, I believe. <laughs> and that's how I got my stress out. <laughs> it was either the bond or him going. <laughs> And now, after 18 years, Clint reunites Craig with his original note and that memory. Oh, my God, dude. As you can see, I put it in there because all these little pieces, I'm, like, terrified that it's going to just That is crazy, man. They're bouncing off of coral. They're getting run over by boats. They're, I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff happens to these bottles, and they survive. Most of Clint's meetings with message senders end with amazement. And how could they not? The odds are ridiculous. But sometimes the return of a message surpasses even Clint's expectations. This was the case with Paula's message. In some cases, a message in a bottle might be the most important letter a person ever receives in their life. That's, I think, the case for Paula. She said that for her, the appearance of the message at that moment in her life was, like, pivotal. And when that message appeared, she felt like it was a sign it's like, keep going. Don't give up. With a message like Paula, there's a whole different sort of gravitas that, you know, comes with that. I mean, just to give you kind of a taste of this story and why it matters to her. And I believe that her parents were, were immigrants. And they bought a piece of property on the coast of New Hampshire um, in the early part of the 20th century. I can go back as far as I can remember. We used to vacation in Hampton Beach as a family at these cottages that were really close to the bridge, which is all the way down the other end from where the beachcomber is located. And one day, 
My father turned to my mother and said, Tina, you go down to the beach and I'm, Paula and I are going to go for a walk and we'll meet you down at the beach. And so he took me by the hand and we walked north on Ocean Boulevard and we walked not very far. And the next thing I knew, we were walking into an office. There was a tall man behind a desk and my father started talking to him. And my father turned to me, he used to call me Bunny, and he said, Bunny, you want to buy a place at the beach? Just like that. So we left the office and we walked back down to the beach and up across the dunes. And my mother and my brothers were down there in, in the water. And, and uh, he walked up to my mother and said, Tina, we're buying a motel. Just like that. It's called the Beachcomber Motel. Not real big or fancy or anything, but just a great little seaside motel. That was kind of their way of uh, working towards the American dream, I guess. All the kids were involved at one point or another with the motel. Paula is one of four. Her brother John is the youngest. Charlie's in the middle. George is the oldest. And they all had their special role at the motel. I had two jobs, Terrence. I had to listen for the telephone, and I had to watch the driveway for customers. Now, I'm seven years old. I'm a skinny little girl with a pixie haircut, and I would bound off that porch and walk up to them and say, can I help you? And I would, I would call my mother. I'd mom, and she'd come out and I'd say, somebody wants to rent. Shortly after her parents bought the motel, her father lost his job. And so my father was out of work for it. He was either 18 or 22 months he was out of work, and he, it was very hard. We had a really hard time getting by. And so we had actually had a family meeting around the kitchen table, and he had said, um, we are really going to have to work very hard as a family and we have to do all we can to run this motel, um, and you know it's going to be yours someday. And he made that promise many times in the, in the next um, 25 years to us. Ten years later, both Paula's mother and father ended up in the hospital. They were both in very critical shape. She called me up one night, and she said to me, uh, Daddy and I have talked and we want you to go take Matthew and John and go up and run the motel so we can pay the taxes. And that's what I did. They ended up being able to pay the, all their bills and their taxes that year. So that was a good thing. In 1980, Paula's mother died of cancer. And then from 1980, I ran it for my father until, almost until he passed away. He passed away in 1990. Um, and this is where the story gets a little... A little um, Smarmy, I guess you'd say. <laughs> he, he ended up, um, a year before he passed, he ended up remarrying a woman that was younger than myself who had just really glommed on to him. Where did they meet? How did they meet each other? Oh, that's not good. <laughs> uh, she, she actually ended up meeting my father. She was a nurse's aide. This woman's name was Janice, and she was Tina's nurse. And when Tina, Paula's mother, died, Janice became the housekeeper, and then eventually Paula's stepmother in 1989. He made a will in 82 um, that left us everything. And so then in 1989, um, he married her, and then he changed his will unbeknownst to us. We found out that the motel had actually been quit claim deeded to her, and we were shocked. 
I think she took the deeds out of his safe and forged them. And then a serious legal battle began. Um, And so we fought for nine years. In order to win back what had been promised to them, they had to testify and tell the story of the motel and how hard they'd all worked to keep the place going. The whole case rested on their testimony, and all of them spoke except for her youngest brother, John. Well, first, my oldest brother, who really was the one that spearheaded this whole thing, George, he kind of clammed up on the stand. Just, he was so upset and so angry. Next up, her brother Charlie testified. You know, just picture a a combination of um, Danny DeVito, Joe Pesci. He, He gave great testimony. And then it was time for Paula to testify. I got up on the stand, they asked me the question. I said, would you have done anything differently had you known that the motel was going to be given away? So I said, I would have done things differently. I would have always helped my parents, but I have a college degree. I had a career as a social worker. If I had known this was going to happen, I would not have forestalled going back to my career. We proved in front of a jury that we had been promised and that we had accepted his promise and he had, he had basically broken his promise to us. Their fight made family case law concerning the statue of fraud in real estate. Their testimony established that if you could prove that you have a promise, even if not in writing, you retain or regain your property. And the, we finally wrested the property from her grasp Uh, in December, I believe, of 1999. The motel was finally back in the family, but it was unrecognizable. My brother George had gone up there first, and he was like beyond, he couldn't even cope with the way that, with the place, the way it was. When I first saw the place, when I went up there with my brother John, my youngest brother John, and we saw the condition it was in, and it was a mess. The house was a mess, the motel was a mess, a mess. But once we, my family, my husband, my children, my brother John, we just, we started putting it back together. And once we got it back up to where it was supposed to be, I mean, they had it painted it yellow. We painted it white. We, we got our, 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 um, our aqua. We got that color back again and we put the letters back up and we put the flag up and had some flower, a flower box. And, you know, we went across the boulevard and we all looked at it and we were like, look at it. And I remember my brother John saying, Look at that little son of a gun. He says, look at that little motel. He says, isn't that adorable, you know? And you don't expect a big, a big guy, you know, a big six foot two Greek, Greek guy, you know, with a mustache and a Harley to be like sentimental over, but he was. So we got it back on its feet. Everything was almost back to normal, but it was a struggle. The whole time I was in Hampton from 2002 until 2000 and um, the last summer I ran the motel was 2013, I was laboring under a three-year tax lien. So every every year I had a lien and I we were in danger of losing the property to an auction. Every The property had been paid off in the 70s, Terrence. And now we're back to 2011 which was a particularly dark year for Paula. And in 2011, my brother didn't want me up there. He didn't want it open. He wanted it sold. I think it was anathema to him. I just think it was too representative of everything we had gone through. And he just, he just, he wanted it wiped off the face of the earth, basically. 
I think he wanted a tsunami to come up and get it. So, so, um, so you fought like you fought as a family to get it back and to kind of you know get what it was yours, and then you you're running it again. But it's like it's not the same, obviously. Like all that bloodshed of that, it's kind of like tainted in a way. You know, you use the exact word that my brother Charlie saying that to me that it's tainted. And it's at this point that Paula collides with Clint. So I found this message and got in touch with her uh, through some really convoluted means. It took forever. I talked to the Hampton, New Hampshire Chamber of Commerce, the tax assessor, the county clerk. So now I got to figure out who owns it now. And I kind of thought like it's beachside property. No way is that still in the family, right? So I enlisted the the help of a, of a reporter and they, he was able to help me kind of connect the dots. And he, he was the one who actually found Paula was running the motel. And this is when Patrick Cronin, the local New Hampshire reporter, shows up. Uh, he said to me, can I, come down and, and, and can I come down and do an interview? And I said, yeah, you can come down, but, but make it quick because I want to go to the beach and get a swim. So he showed up, I don't know, around 3 o'clock, and he, he pulled up Clint's, um, Clint's blog site. You know, he wanted me to tell him who, who wrote this thing, and I'm, I'm totally confused. Hold on one second. I'm going to get it. Honest to God, it's it's so so strange. I just I sit I look at it from afar and I'm like I can't believe this. It's okay. What I could read and this is what I saw. I saw it return to something I can't read. 419. I could make up part of ocean. This is and then I saw and and I saw receive and it's misspelled. Um, and I can clearly see from and I see Tina. And then I see owner, now the Coke stain, of Beachcomber. So I'm looking at this. I go, you know, I, 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 I don't know. Well, Monday morning, I made myself coffee. And I sat down in the living room and I opened my computer. And I pulled it up. And I'm all alone in the house except for my dog, Brando. And I'm looking at this message and that's when it jumped out off the page at me. All of a sudden, I believe it was the A where he writes and receive. Something, it just clicked in my head. And I went, oh my God, that's my father's writing. <gasps> oh my God. I was like that, freaked right out. That's my father's writing. And I was like talking to my dog. And, my, and I was just talking, it, I, I don't know, running around the house. It's that, completely freaked out. Completely freaked out. Why did this message come back to me? Uh, the odds against this bottle surviving in the Atlantic Ocean for I'm, I 50 years, not getting broken, and then being found by somebody like Clint who appreciated what he was looking at. It's a it's I don't I don't know if it's a miracle. There's a word I'm looking for, um, but the the odds against it are are really stacked. And then Paula did some legwork of her own. $150, the reward money from the message, that would have been the monthly mortgage for both the house Paul and Tina owned and the beachcomber. It was a lot of money back then. And this note was essentially a practical joke. 
by Paul Antina. If someone had found that note back then and asked for the $150 reward, Tina would have had a fit and Paul would have been laughing. Also, like knowing the whole backstory, that particular note, it takes you back to a really sweet moment between your parents. I'm glad you said that because I was thinking about it the other day. It's almost like with everything that happened from 80 on, you go back to 1960 when they were happy. She was, they were 39 and 40 years old and a very nice looking couple. And they were, you know, they were doing their thing. They were, and they were happy to have this place. And uh, yeah, it was really lovely. It brings you, it brings you back, like you just said, to the sweet, the sweet time when, before all the bad stuff happened. My um, husband, he, he goes, you're not going to believe this. I go, what? He says, your father told me that he threw a message out into the ocean. I says, what? Get the hell out of here. What? Yeah, he, he told him. And my husband is a vault. Do you remember the, the vault story on Seinfeld? Yeah, yeah. My husband is a vault. He's still telling me stuff now that my father told him. He still comes out with stories. I'm like, when the hell were you going to tell me that? My husband doesn't even remember what they had, what they were doing. And all of a sudden, my father says, hey, Pierce, you, are you thirsty? You feel like having a Coke? So he says, yeah. He says, I, yeah, just get me one. Will you go, go get down the house? I got some Coke in the refrigerator. So my husband goes down the house and gets a Coke, two Cokes. And he comes up and they went across the street to the ocean, to the wall. And they're drinking their Coke. And he's over the hole in the bottle. He says to Mark, you know, you know what I did one time? And he tells him. He said, I put a note in a bottle. I sc- screwed the cap on, made sure it was on real tight. And I wound my arm back and I, and I threw it. And I watched it. And I could see the little cap glinting. And he says, I saw it go towards Boar's Head, which is north. And he says, I watched it so I couldn't see it anymore. He says, I went back down the house. I wonder if Paula, like if I had just found a note from her dad tucked into a library book, and I I find myself wondering, like, why does it matter, message in a bottle? Why is it any different than just finding someone's old diary? And she had the best response. It was just so wonderful. She said, a letter in a book doesn't really say much more than what's in the letter itself. But a message in a bottle is a symbol, right? And it's connected to a certain kind of gesture, you know, that greeting to the world, right? And she said that my dad was not, he was a little reserved. You know, he wasn't the most playful guy all the time. And so to see him, imagine him sending this message in a bottle, for her was like connecting with the side of her dad that she didn't always get to see. There's a part of me that wishes that note from your dad was longer. And... Because then, you know, it would feel like a letter. But at the same time, it's kind of perfect that it's so short, you know? It leaves a little bit to the... Well, I've had the thought, too, that I wish she had said something more... Deeper. Yeah. More. Yeah. But he probably... He never could have known what was going to happen. And he would have, you know? Maybe he just sent the one, right? But it makes you wonder... 
Oh my god, I never thought of that. I know, if you do it once. <gasps> I never thought of that. Can you imagine if we... You're gonna keep looking? Oh, I'm gonna keep looking. <laughs> I'll never stop looking. <laughs> oh my god, I never thought of that! <laughs> I'm here in the South Station in Boston waiting for my train back to New York. As you can tell. <laughs> I've just been going constantly for almost two weeks on trains and buses and flights and whatever and uh, it's starting to catch up to me and uh, I head back home back to normal life I mean, it's crazy to to have a foot in two worlds one where I have to you know I have just kind of a normal life where I go about my work and my daily tasks and uh, paying the bills and all that stuff and then this other world where it's like a different dimension where like anything is possible where you know, I can find a message in a bottle one day and then next be meeting with the folks who sent it or their descendants or whatever. And it feels surreal to say the least. Well, I've got one more train to catch. <laughs> one more train to catch until next time and I'll, I'll, I'll come back and see Paula again and Janet, Carol, Richard, Craig, all my friends. I'll be back. Listeners of Memory Motel, this is the very last episode of 2016 and the final episode of season one. There's a special treat for you after the credits, so hang in there. We're saying goodbye to 2016. What an odd, depressing, and horrific, and at times wondrous year you've been. But we'll be back in 2017. And to stay in touch or support us or hear what we have up our sleeve for season two, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our newsletter. Visit us on Facebook. Send us a tweet at Memory Motel or at Terrence underscore Mickey. Follow us on Instagram at Memory Motel Podcast and show your true love for the show at the Memory Motel Patreon page. All the details will be on our new website, memorymotel.audio. This final episode is a thank you for all the people who found our podcast in the sea of digital platforms. Thank you for finding us, listening, and waving back across the transom with your kindness and encouragement. Whether an iTunes review, a nice note on Twitter, a write-up in your newsletter or other publication, or a donation to Patreon. Please know the smallest of gestures make a difference. And thanks to everyone who helps make and introduce Memory Motel to the world. Carrie-Anne, Bart, Samira, Carson, Katie and Chris from What's Happening Here, Julia from The Lonely Hour, Jerome, Sasha, Murray, a big sloppy thank you from me. And now, your special treat. So I found this one um, in the Caribbean and found this thing just really close to the water, which tells me that, I mean, A, that it had probably just washed up, and, and B, that maybe it would have gotten sucked back out, like if I hadn't picked it up. A little excited, a little nervous. I'm mainly just hopeful that there's information on this message that's going to connect us with the person. And it'd be really awesome if we could connect today, like if I could call them or send them an email or something. And 
So I'm glad we're opening this today because it's been just staring at me from across the room for like a year now. You know, this person did their job of making the message well, and the message did its job of getting to shore. And, you know, I found it, but the really critical part is getting it out without destroying it. So <laughs> hopefully I'll be able to do that today. All right, man. Well, let's get this bottle open. <laughs> I'm ready to meet my new friend. It looks like it's okay. Okay, so get this out of the way. Holy crap. Oh my God. And this is when you really realize how fragile everything is because the slightest screw up. Okay. That's French, isn't it? Man, I, I can't even, I, I don't even know how to pronounce French words. I can't even try to read this. I very much want to send it to Emily. <laughs> she's, she's our French translator, huh? Okay, do it, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> she just emailed me her attempt. Couldn't figure out one word. It's like a manifesto for his son. God, this is just incredible. She's this is such a beautiful, it's even better than I thought. Just wait till you hear this. Did you get to see it? Here's our first real translation from someone who actually knows French, not just a computer. <laughs> uh, it, the note says, uh, My name is Jean-Paul. I am a sailor on board a merchant ship crossing from Amway Bay, Venezuela to Gibraltar. Just between us, I wish that we could live in a better world without war, without poverty, and where each can eat when hungry. Refuse all forms of slavery, preserve your dignity and listen to your heart. It alone holds the key to happiness. A successful life is a life in which one lives up to his dreams, in which one behaves always in accordance with his values and puts his best into everything he does, and so exists in harmony with who he is. And if a life uh, and if a life is possible that gives us an occasion to make ourselves consecrated to things other than ourselves and to offer things to humanity, even if very humble, uh, even if it's minuscule. Man is made not to drag his chains, but to open his wings. It's the heart that births the most beautiful projects and those projects that give the most beautiful memories, that God may protect you for my son, Kevin, born the 12th of September, 1987. That is incredible. That is so beautiful. I love this part. That's part that I didn't, that I didn't um, translate this just between us. That's so intimate. Like, just between us, just between me, Jean-Paul, and you, the finder of this note. I wish that we could live in a better world without war, without poverty, and maybe my favorite line, where each can eat when hungry. My God. It makes you realize for a second that we don't live in a world where everybody gets to eat when they're hungry. That's sobering.
This philosophical attitude is something I feel a little bit of kinship with, you know? I mean, it's kind of how I feel about messages and bottles myself. You know, that each one is a gift and it connects us and it shows us, it shows us each other as humans first, you know, um, without whatever, social, political barriers. Yeah, I think it's, it's really easy to think of people from other places as anonymous, like they don't maybe matter to us or whatever. But, uh, I mean, how can I not feel connected with that? You know, this guy is like pouring out his heart in a, in a letter here. And I think he's right, you know, what he says about like living a life where you live in accordance with your values and you fulfill your, your wishes, your goals or whatever. And in the process of doing that, you give something back to humanity, even if it's something small. I mean, that's, yeah, I think that's a good life. <laughs> I think if you can do that, you've lived a good life. So I'm with them. This guy's on Facebook, and there's a picture of a ship on his... <laughs> That's gotta it. be him. Is that a Gryffindor lion? What is that? It's his, probably his family crest. Oh, yeah, that's probably true. See, there's the line. It's a shipping line. Wow. Look at that. Should I send him a message? Should I yeah. like, take a photo and put Let's it on it. my computer? Okay, well, I'm just gonna say I have so many questions and I would love to talk with you about it. I hope to hear from you soon. Uh, enjoy this photo of your message. <laughs> Man. Well, I guess that's kind of where the mystery rests for right now. This is the thing. You have to be okay with a little bit of mystery when dealing with messages and bottles because for all the Facebook and social media and whatnot in the world, things don't always happen maybe as quickly <laughs> as, as you'd like them to.